This program is solely intended for your viewing pleasure. Welcome to the first episode in the hunt for gems within the treasure trove of Coliseum Home Videos. The Cola Tombola has been shaken, rattled and rolled. The dust has settled and it has given us our first subject. It's bashed in the USA. Catalogue number WF116, the 116th release by Coliseum and conveniently... It is the same catalogue number in the SilverVision library, which as we get deep into this series, we will see many varying catalogue numbers. Honestly, it is an absolute mess. But for the first episode, everything corresponds. WF116 bashed in the USA. Released on the 23rd of June, 1993. Running at approximately 120 minutes. This was the first tape to be released after Hulk Hogan's last televised appearance just two weeks earlier at the King of the Ring in 1993. Although, of course, he was still challenging Yokozuna at international house shows after that, it was clear he was on his way out of the WWF, along with the likes of Ric Flair, Ultimate Warrior, Papa Shango, Giant Gonzalez, Tito Santana, Terry Taylor, Mr. Hughes, Ted DiBiase... Jim Duggan and Typhoon, who had already left or were within months of being gone at the time of this tape's release. That leaves us with an interesting point of who they will want to feature on this tape. The first place to look for clues on that would be the cover of the tape. The first thing I want to address is the title. I mean... Is it a play on being born in the USA or party in the USA? French kissing in the USA? Is it just such a patriotic piece of propaganda that it oozes red, white and blue and was crafted from the feathers and bones of a bald eagle? Actually, no. It's a play on the name Great American Bash, the name of the annual WCW pay-per-view, which was a regular mid-summer financial successful tour through the mid-80s until, ironically, 1992. The first year they didn't have a Great American Bash was 1993, the year of Bashed in the USA. To put it into perspective, just imagine if Ring of Honor or New Japan named an event I don't know, slams of the summer or a series of survivors. Why the WWF felt the need to jibe at their competitors' pay-per-view names is anyone's guess. But remember, Virgil, Vincent, Shane Akeem and Rio Rogers. Vince and Dusty like to have digs at each other. The picture on the cover, the logo is... All we really have is the words bashed in the USA over a, uh, a yellow star, a very generic, kind of like a sheriff's badge. That's what it reminds me of. Of course, bashed in the USA are red, white, and blue, and black. 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 I'm terribly sorry. I don't know why I can't stop saying black. And the image that was given to attract our eyes to this tape 
is a shot from the 1992 Survivor Series. Some seven months before this tape, it shows Mr. Perfect hitting Razor Ramon with a cheer. Technically, you could say the image displays someone being bashed, and that pay-per-view certainly took place in the USA, so it is an accurate sell. But will either of these men be featured on the tape? That is to be determined. Now we turn to the back cover, where, for those of you that don't remember Blockbuster, this is what you spent most of your time doing, reading the back cover of any given tape, see if it was the right tape for that weekend. And what we have on this tape, bashed in the USA, is three more images. Mr. Perfect, once again, is his pummeling Lex Luger. Secondly, we have Earthquake, whose ass is above the top rope, and he is kind of leapfrogging on the shoulders of Typhoon. And collectively, they are squashing Bo and Blake of the Beverly Brothers. Finally, we have an image of Bret Hart drawing. Hmm. I seriously hope there is some relevance to that one. The tape claims it is smashing, trashing, star-spangled, bashing, World Wrestling Federation style. Whatever the hell that means. We're informed that this tape features the 40-man battle royal. Not any old 40-man battle royal. This is the 40-man battle royal. So there is a good chance that Razor, Mr. Perfect, Lex Luger, somebody that we've seen on the cover so far, could feature in this. Yokozuna versus The Undertaker is on this tape. Now, this predates the Hokikoki Classic feud that began at Survivor Series of 1993 and lasted a full year till Survivor Series of 1994. Bret Hart versus Rick Martel, two tremendous Canadian technicians, I expect big things from this match. Big Boss Man versus Razor Ramon. I don't want to jump to conclusions, but here we have a babyface who had left before this tape was even released against a heel who debuted in late 1992. I wonder who will get that victory. The tape specifies that we have tag team extras. They're not like DVD extras. Just some extra matches that feature tag teams. Tatanka and High Energy versus Rick Martel and Money Inc., Jury is out on that one. And also the Natural Disasters versus the Beverly Brothers. Now, on a side note, I was always baffled that these two giant men, who are named after weather phenomena that have ended people's lives, they spent a large portion of their time as baby faces. Because why wouldn't you want to cheer on somebody that's named after a disaster, a team named the Natural Disasters? What could be more babyface than that? But bringing it back round to the tape, I do believe the Beverly Brothers were a wholly underrated tag team. So I have a certain amount of curiosity for this match, just to see them. And that final match justifies one of the three images. Of course, what VHS tape wouldn't be complete without exclusive features? And on this tape, that the designers felt was essential in helping sales, is a feature named The Perfect Guide to Stamp Collecting. Yes, we're probably going to see Mr. Perfect, but what the hell he's doing with stamps, I have no idea. When he's not on the road... Mr. Perfect is the stamp collector extraordinaire. Extraordinary spelt wrong, by the way. Yep, typo on a Coliseum home video. Who'd have thought it? All I can say for this is I'm all for sneak peeks into the home lives of wrestlers. You know, exclusively on, on tapes and DVDs and whatever. Let's get a glimpse of what they do in, in real life. And even if it's kayfabe, you know, a look into what the character does. If you remember the Repo Man where he's running around in the dark repossessing people's cars, just a complete crook. Yeah, that's not his real life, but it was a look into him outside of the ring. 
It was interesting. It was fun. It was entertaining. But this Mr. Perfect stamp collecting, it's not something that I believe to be a good look for the former Intercontinental Champion. And the final exclusive on this tape is The Art of Bret Hart. We have an opportunity to witness his creativity out of the ring. We've heard stories and seen some images of Bret's artwork. So this might be a nice little gem for the videotape. We are going to see Bret Hart drawing, as exciting as that sounds. Now, usually on these Coliseum home videos, we'd get a superstar profile, and this tape is no different. What a superstar profile is, is a collection of of matches of one specific wrestler, maybe a couple of promos, or just, just featuring them, just spotlighting a wrestler. It's interesting to see that at what time these tapes were released, who the chosen wrestler would be, who they're looking to elevate to the next level. And on this tape, bashed in the USA, Shawn Michaels is spotlighted, which is very, very interesting when, of course, he spent a lot of 1993 as the Intercontinental Champion. But when this tape was released, he was only three months away from being suspended slash walking out for taking slash not taking steroids. But of course, he would go on to be one of the greatest of all time. Interesting to see what matches they've chose for him here. Overall, I'm optimistic about this tape. A blend of singles matches and tag matches, a battle royal, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, and of course, Mr. Perfect stamp collecting. It does sound like it's got potential to be good, but it could go either way. There is one more feature that's going to link all these episodes of this series together. Who said that wins and losses in wrestling didn't matter? Certainly not the gems of wrestling. We believe they do, so we are going to tally up the performances of every wrestler in every match on any tape that we review. We're going to keep score of wins, losses, draws, countouts, DQs, pinfalls, submissions, no contests. Whatever be the case, we're going to keep score and find out who is the ultimate gladiator in the Coliseum of Home Videos. The rules for that? Simple. Three points for a pinfall or a submission victory. Two points for a DQ or countout victory. Two points if you're on a winning team but do not earn the fall yourself. One point for a draw. Zero points for a defeat. Got it? Good. Let's begin Bashed in the USA. We open this tape with a lovely montage of that awkward era that we have arrived at, the in-between of the golden era and the new generation, with Bret Hart being the key feature, but also ending with a shot of Yokozuna, who is the current champion at the time of this tape's release. We are then greeted by Mr. Perfect himself and one of his 1,000 hobbies. Remember his awesome vignettes that he had. He's playing football, he does darts, he does golf, basketball, pool, snooker, catch the pigeon, choke the chicken, tiggly winks, etc. He can do it all. Well, what ace will he have up his sleeve for an exclusive Coliseum home video presentation? Yes, stamp collecting. I don't know, I was expecting maybe something different, there'll be a twist on it. But no, he is in some museum of stamps and he's looking for the perfect stamp. It does feel like the World Wrestling Federation are phoning this in. Just seconds into the tape, and I'm already going like, oh, this is cheap. So cheap. Cheap, never cheap. I'll sing you song. He calls himself the world's greatest philatelist. Did I pronounce that right? I have no idea. That is the study of stamp, 
although stamp collectors are usually referred by the same name. I think if you're collecting stamps, you're probably studying them at the same time. I don't know. I'm getting too in-depth with this. Let's move on. We get to our first match. It is the big boss man versus Razor Ramon. The up-and-coming heel who main-evented the previous Survivor Series and Royal Rumble against the big boss man who had left in March before this tape was released in the June. Who is going to win? Oh, by the way, I was being sarcastic. This is a Coliseum-exclusive States Gorilla Monsoon who is on commentary with Lord Alfred Hayes. They discuss how this is Razor Ramon's toughest test as he has been in the Federation for a mere one whole year before this tape was released. But still... It was recorded seven months after his debut. This match took place on the 14th of December 1992 at the Expo Centre in Green Bay, Wisconsin. It was actually televised on Superstars in Italy. There's a fact for you. Nowadays in the WWE, he would have faced his toughest test. He'd have retaken that test and retaken that test, retaken that test, failed the test, succeeded the test. The same test within that seven-month time frame they are talking about here. Razor is in the ring and he wants a kiss from Mike McGurk, who is a woman, despite her name. And I do really enjoy her announcing. Her voice is brilliant. I prefer it to Lillian Garcia, who gets a lot more adulation for what she did as a ring announcer than uh, Mike McGurk. Yes, I'm a Mike McGurk guy. The big boss man is riding high with a string of victories, according to Monsoon. He's doing his nightstick tricks as the referee, Bill Alfonso, demands he put his weapon away. Razor Ramon casually shakes his head in disappointment that the boss man would even bring a weapon to the ring. I'm disappointed too. The guy's a babyface. Shouldn't be doing that. Hayes believes that the calmness of Razor is what he needs to win. All great champions win with a mild manner. Wait, wait, this is the hot-headed Cuban. Right from the start, in his vignettes, he was hot-headed, he was snapping at people. He was loud, abusive, he was a bully. Yet, he's going to win and be successful with a mild manner. Maybe I could clear the table, huh? Is that what you would like, man? I'd clear the table, man. I'd clear the table for you, man. Well done, Alfred. Razor throws the toothpick at Big Boss Man as Vintage Razor. Boss Man picks it up, snaps it like a twig. Or like a toothpick before spitting in the face of Razor. Top babyface. <laughs> Apparently Bossman was told he would never return after the beating he took. Very vague details from the commentators seemingly referring to the Survivor Series in 1992. The match between the big Bossman and Nails. But of course they can name no names because of, you know, Nails is chokey chokey, fiery fiery, the boss wanted sex from me. All that nonsense. Mind games are played between the two as Bossman leaves the ring. Razor is opening the ropes to invite him back in. Bossman then diverts the attention of the referee while he kicks the middle rope high up into Razor's Ramones. Yep, there is Cuban crowns. Once again, top babyface. <coughs> Bossman is too strong for Razor, but Ramon does manage to push the big man away. Bossman reacts with a slap to the face. A shoulder breaker has no effect. Yet Razor wants to prove his superior strength with a Greco-Roman knuckle lock. Or a finger lock, as Monsoon calls it. It's a test of strength. Razor gets Bossman down to his knees. That is a surprise, but Bossman makes the comeback. But Razor cuts him off with a kick to the gut. Bossman hits a series of roll-ups. Razor attempts to use the nightstick, but Bossman ducks and pummels Razor before shooting him off into the corner before charging in recklessly. The bad guy manages to get his feet up into the face of Bossman. 
and with a little leverage from the middle rope, he takes the victory, albeit a little murky. He cheated to win, but he got that win. The up-and-coming heel does get the victory over the recently departed babyface. We're playing the game of life, and let's see how perfect you can deal with that. Mr. Perfect reminds us that he has had run-ins with Razor and confesses that Ramon oozes not of machismo, but of something that stinks. He rolls a clip for us of the Survivor Series main event where Mr. Perfect himself replaced the departed Ultimate Warrior to team with Macho Man against Razor and Ric Flair. We see Mr. Perfect swinging a chair into the back of Ramon. There's the clip of which the cover has been taken from in a 30-second cutaway. That was perfect, states Perfect. But what isn't perfect is his perfect search for the perfect stamp. If he could get a little help from someone. Anyway, whilst he's writing a letter of complaint to customer services, he's going to give us a six-man tag team match. Rick Martel and Money Inc. versus Tatanka and High Energy. We have the same commentators once again as Lord Alfred informs us that Rick Martel gives him free arrogance. That's a lovely gesture from a heel. Money Inc. are the current tag team champions and they have Jimmy Hart managing them. As for their opponents, I know High Energy were rated poorly and with good reason. The whole gimmick sucked. I'm sorry to say anything with Owen Hart sucked, but yes, High Energy was terrible. IRS is the technician and DiBiase is the tactician. And together they are smarter than any other team. Quit your crying and pay what's due or IRS will audit you. Apparently all wrestling fans are tax cheats. I think that's a bit of an unfair stereotype. High Energy entered to a nice ovation, says Gorilla. Ooh, what a nice ovation. What a lovely team. Two very handsome young men. Well, Coco wasn't exactly young at this point. But look at their quirky parachute pants, their zany braces or suspenders, as we are corrected by the American gorilla. But anyway, what a nice team with a nice ovation. I would like a cup of tea and some custard creams with all this loveliness of a tag team. They have no edge to them whatsoever. But Tatanka does get a fantastic ovation. The Lumbee Indian of the World Wrestling Federation, which is true, he was a Lumbee Indian. Probably still is. I don't know if it's something you can stop being. And we are informed that that is the same tribe as Chief J Strongbow. That is not true. That's where a gimmick becomes racist. <laughs> the feathers are on. The tomahawk is here and it's been sharpened. You hear the bells ringing? That means one thing. Strongbow's back in the territory. Tie up and an arm drag from DiBiase to Owen Hart, who is doing the... Golly gosh, I'm just glad to be here. I'm such a baby face. I must clap my hands. A scoop slam from Ted, and he saunters to the corner whilst Monsoon claims that Bret Hart is the current WWF champion. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's look at that, shall we? <coughs> this match took place on the 3rd of June 1992 at the Civic Complex in Cornwall, Ontario, Canada. Brett didn't defeat Ric Flair until October 12th of that year. In fact, Ric Flair wasn't even the champion at this point. It was the babyface Randy Savage who held the belt until September 1st. So all I can surmise from this is that Gorilla Monsoon was preempting that Bret Hart would be the champion at the time of this tape's release in 1993. But even still, Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania 9 happened. He had held the title and lost it to Yokozuna by the time the tape was released. So I'm sorry, Gorilla, but you are way, way 
way off the mark with that one. You could not be more wrong. You could try, but you would not be successful. Owen hits a drop kick, a hip toss on IRS, and another one to clear the ring as the baby faces stand tall in the ring, celebrating like they'd won the illustrious six-man tag belts. Also fictitious six-man tag belts. As Owen signals money to DiBiase. 1100 money. I assume he's asking for a bribe to throw the match. Martel tags in and casually spins away from the action, as he has no concerns with dealing with Owen Hart. But as he rotates 180 back to face his opponent, he realises that Owen has tagged out. It's Tatanka that's in the ring. And the Native American collides with the arrogant model. Tatanka takes him down with a series of chops, Indian style. Coco is super quick and he drops IRS with kicks. Alfred Hayes calls out the bond that these two athletes share as they both wear braces. Now please rewind to my previous comment about suspenders, braces... Regional dialect. Yes, it's a regional dialect. Uh, uh, what region? Uh, upstate New York. Either way, what a ridiculous comment. DiBiase catches Coco with a knee to the back as he is shot off the rope by IRS. It's classic tag team spot. Tatanka gets in, but he's quickly put down by DiBiase and Mattel works him over. Scoop slam and a blatant choke. IRS is in. He goads high energy into the ring for the referee to stop them, causing a distraction so DiBiase can choke Tatanka with the tag rope. Love it. Classic tag team wrestling. Take notes, all you tag teams of modern day. The heels are skipping tags. They're just clapping their hands together instead of actually making the tag for no other reason but the heels. So they do heelish things. They're lying to the referee, but a sunset flip for a two-count for Tatanka almost turns the tide, but DiBiase quickly regains control with a front face lock. Coco manages to tag in, but IRS distracts the referee, who then sends Coco back outside as if he never tagged. Oh, it's so unfair. The baby faces are doing everything right and they're just being cheated. Reverse vertical suplex and a lukewarm tag to Owen Hart. Did he tag? Didn't he tag? Who cares? Because everyone is now in. It's a Pier 6 brawl. Owen and Ted end up outside, as do Martel and Tatanka, leaving Coco to attempt a suplex on IRS, but DiBiase pulls the Birdman's legs from underneath him. So as IRS is in the air one second, he's landed flat on top of Coco the next. The referee counts three. Monsoon blasts Earl Hebner for losing control, but Hayes claims that he did the right thing by just counting someone's shoulders down. Just anyone. Legal man, illegal man, whatever. Just get this hot mess over. That's Alfred's philosophy. The hot end just became a hot mess. Mr. Perfect has now found a worker. Apparently she's a hell of a worker. An upper mid-carder, in fact. He informs the woman of his goal of finding the perfect stamp for his perfect collection. Which, to me, begs the question, if the collection is perfect, then how can it be improved upon? Hmm. Whilst they begin looking for this perfect stamp, it's time to look at the superstar profile. A look at the toy boy, the icon, the main event, the showstopper. Of course, he wasn't any of these things at this point. Maybe he was a toy boy. He was definitely the heartbreak kid. He is Shawn Michaels. But the mere mention of his name sparks a fire within Mr. Perfect, who then decides to ask the lady what she's doing tonight. Hmm. We cut to a promo. Mean Gene is with Shawn Michaels. And for this Coliseum tape, Shawn had to pinpoint three matches to feature from all of his intercontinental title defences. He's had so many, and the Federation seems to think that he is a zookeeper, states Shawn Michaels. 
as they put him in the ring with an animal. No, not George Steele, as we uh, decided on a poll on facebook.com slash gems of wrestling. George Steele beat Batista as the only true animal of professional wrestling. But the animal that Shawn Michaels is talking about is Kamala. Let's get to that first intercontinental title defence. Reverend Slick, who at this stage in his career had found God, making him a better person. Instead of buying and selling heels, he's now leading the babyface Kamala to the ring for this match on the Wrestling Challenge. Kamala, of course, being abused by his previous managers, Kim Chi and Harvey Wimpleman. Slick is showing him the better side of life. He's teaching him how to wrestle. He's trying to focus this big guy. Shawn Michaels is a man who did become a better person after finding God in real life. Shawn Michaels enters and Lord Alfred Hayes tells us that he cannot see Kamala winning. Spoilers, Lord Alfred. As this change of attitude, a positive change of attitude, is not going to help him in the World Wrestling Federation. Sean is evading Kamala, but a whip attempt fails as he does not have the strength and a massive chop from Kamala lays down HBK. Slick stops Kamala from capitalising on this advantage and HBK attacks. But a double-handed chokelift shows us that based on strength, there could only be one winner. Kamala misses a splash and HBK hits a phenomenal forearm, sort of. A top rope forearm, anyway. Thrust kick from Kamala and a body check before scooping up HBK and dumping him over the top rope to the outside. It's a hell of a bump for a match that took place on the 26th of January 1993, exclusively for Coliseum, at the Convention Center at Fresno, California. Lord Alfred Hayes claims that Kamala is confused and has lost his concentration. HBK then throws Slick out of his way before leaving down the aisle, but Kamala catches up with him and carries him back to the ring as the bell rings. What the hell? So the heel goes to leave. The babyface catches him up, picks him up, goes to bring him back to the ring, but the bell just rings. The referee's counted ten. And even though the bell has gone, the commentators are discussing why it wasn't a count-out, but... It seems that there was. There's some kind of confusion going on. A scoop slam and a big splash to the back of Michaels and Kamala tries to pin the champion who is in an incorrect position face down on the mat. But regardless of that, the match is over as the referee informs Kamala and Lord Alfred Hayes believes that if Slick can channel Kamala's power, then he can be one of the best wrestlers of all time. Wait a second. He was just saying at the beginning of the match that Kamala's... Change of attitude's not going to do him any good. But now, all of a sudden, after a, a two-minute non-contest, he now believes that Slick can channel him to become one of the best wrestlers of all time. And just for the record, Kamala was released from the World Wrestling Federation just one month after this tape was released. HBK is sent over the top rope by a chop from Kamala, and he snatches his belt before leaving for good this time, and Monsoon confirms that it was, in fact, a double countout as we cut back to Gene and Sean. We have the great veteran from the Everglades coming up next. Get her! As HBK tells us that it's the same old song and dance as Sean's gonna win. We have Jim Ross, the macho man, and Bobby Heenan on commentary this time, and Skinner enters. He so much reminds me of Bayou Billy. The Adventures of Bio Billy. What a man. Macho confesses that there is no gimmick infringement between his hat and Skinner's hat. And oh my god, of course there's no gimmick infringement. We're comparing the Macho Man Randy Savage to an alligator wrestler? Skinner? 
taxidermist? I, I don't know what Skinner actually is. He just has a green tongue and eats alligators. I, I don't know. Live by himself in the swamp. He hunted alligator for living. Just bombing the head with a stone. Macho also believes that Skinner will win by biting and ripping through HBK, but he won't win the belt. They're calling it a DQ as they do not know what Skinner is willing to do. Heenan is on the fence as Sean knows all the great wrestling moves and Skinner does not. A unique dynamic as both these guys are heels, so two heels facing off on the 14th of December 1992 on primetime wrestling at the Expo Centre in Green Bay, Wisconsin. So the same recording as... Razor Ramon in the Big Boss Man match. A scoop slam and a massive right hand from Skinner sends HBK out of the ring. Looks like Skinner's working more as a babyface. Macho speaks the greatest line of this whole tape. He says, and I quote, I think I've picked a winner in Skinner, but I wouldn't invite him to dinner. Ooh, yeah. HBK uses his speed, but a right hand and a bite from Skinner puts the alligator wrestler in command. Heenan knows what Skinner is thinking. He wants to stuff HBK and have him over his trophy case, which just sounds weird. But JR thinks that that's rather ludicrous. But Macho believes that it is about the right mentality of Skinner. Rather than having a belt, he'd want a human stuffed above his trophy case. JR confesses that Skinner reminds him of a character from Deliverance. Kids, don't watch Deliverance, not until you're older. A shoulder breaker for a two count and a back elbow from Skinner sends HBK outside the ring again. But Shawn Michaels puts on the brakes to deny Skinner sending him into the post and instead sending the Everglader into the steel post. HBK tries to elevate himself over Skinner who puts on the brakes and nails HBK with another right which sends him over the top again. Shawn Michaels is really bumping for Skinner here. Both guys look Good. Sean uses his agility to slide back in through the legs of Skinner and he hits a crescent kick, aka sweet chin music, for the three count. You don't really expect it to end a match at this point in his career because it wasn't known as his finisher. It may well have just been in that transition period where Shawn Michaels had decided that the teardrop suplex wasn't good enough. It just needed the kick. Either way, decent match for this tape. We go back to Gene and Sean. Sean says Kamala was not easy. Skinner was a grinding job. But this next match will be against an actual human. Sean thought he was in a zoo, not the WWF. (laughs) Ironic considering the panda was the one that won the lawsuit eventually. His human opponent is Virgil. Bobby Heenan mocks Mike McGurk. How dare he? I am a Mike McGurk guy. And JR explains about her dad being a famed Oklahoma wrestler and promoter, Leroy McGurk. The more you know, guys. A quick start to this match with a snapmare from HBK as he casually chews gum, as he usually did back then. And Bobby Heenan calls it dangerous. Indeed it is. It could be stuck in his system for, is it eight years? Yeah, I think it's eight years. Then, a couple of days later, the remnants of the gum will find their way through the intestines and out your body. HBK frustrates Virgil, who seems to blow his top, but counters a hammerlock before hitting a fist drop 
as Shawn Michaels drops down, probably taught to him by the million dollar man, and then he hits an atomic drop and a drop kick for a two. High cross body for another two, and a roll up attempt is thwarted as HBK holds on to the ropes to maintain his balance. Then he hits a crescent kick, the move that finished the last match, but this time he didn't go for the pinfall afterwards. Instead, he just opts to stomp on Virgil. Now, as we stated in the last match, that the Sweetshire music, the Crescent Kick, may have just been introduced around the time of the Skinner match, which was the 14th of December 1992. This match with Virgil took place on the 28th of October 1992 on an episode of Primetime Wrestling. It was from the Louisville Gardens in Louisville, Kentucky. So perhaps it was just in between October 28th and December 14th that they decided, you know what, we're going to go with the Super Kick, the Crescent Kick. The sweet chin music. Backslide from Virgil for a two count. But Sean then hits a clothesline. Vertical suplex before telling the camera that he is your intercontinental champion. You gotta love me. Virgil turns the tide by throwing HBK's head back to the mat as he ducks. Clotheslines, stinging lefts and a big right. But he takes a few seconds to gloat before going for the pin. And due to that delay, he only gets a two count. Perhaps if Virgil wasn't so cocky, he'd now be the Intercontinental Champion. Well, not now, but now for when this tape was released. He then misses a high knee before Shawn Michaels nails the teardrop suplex for the three count pinfall. We go back to Gene and HBK once again. The professional side of HBK is the Intercontinental Champion, but he is keeping his personal side under wraps. Hell no, he's not. I'm in awe, Vasily, of how you say what you say with a straight face. As we would see in the years to come with the click, with the sunny affair, with the sunny days, his rivalry with Bret Hart, his uh, politics backstage, Shawn Michaels did not keep his personal life to himself. He also states that chicks dig him, as it's virtually impossible to go unnoticed when you look like Shawn Michaels. We cut to Mr. Perfect, who's still looking for that perfect stamp. But it has to be perfect. If it's mint, he doesn't want it. Blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I am losing interest in all this nonsense. It's not necessary. Mr. Perfect is still looking for a perfect stamp and blah, blah. He wants the good stuff bringing to him whilst we get to watch a battle royal. All right, Jimmy Hart, the waiting is just about over. We're minutes away from the battle royal. So here we are at the 40-man battle royal. Um, it's always hard to explain a battle royal through audio. Can't really do play-by-play on it other than explain the eliminations or the entrance or... Uh, let's let's just go through some of the highlights. Like Earthquake and Typhoon were the first ones out, somewhat surprisingly. Two of the biggest guys were the first eliminated. LOD and the Nasty Boys have some sort of issue as Sags is eliminated by Hawk. Then Sags pulls Hawk out himself. Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels are working each other. But my absolute favourite moment in this battle royal and possibly... Any battle royal ever is when they were both eliminated by a jobber. What the actual hell? Of course, the story was they their rivalry. They hated each other so much that they were distracted. They were they were focusing on each other so much that a jobber could just throw them out of the ring, and they continued to brawl on the outside until Michaels, quite comically, just decided to dash away. Oh, fair enough. Now I'm going. He just ran off. But yes, a jobber eliminated Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart from a battle royal, which took place on the 18th of May 1992 at the Riverfront Coliseum in Cincinnati, Ohio. Anyway, 
the participants were. Let, let's let's get through this. The participants were Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, Sergeant Slaughter, Tatanka, Tito Santana, Kerry Von Erich, Barry Horowitz, Jim Powers, Kato Skinner, Repo Man, here come some jobbers, Dale Wolf, The Brooklyn Brawler, Brian Costello, Reno Riggins, Brian Donahue, Barry Hardy, Chuck Casey, Ron Cumberledge, back to some actual wrestlers now, Colonel Mustafa, the former Iron Sheik, Crush, Jobber, Max Spears, Ted DiBiase, The Nasty Boys, Bo Beverly, Blake Beverly, The Legion of Doom, Coco Beware, Owen Hart, The Natural Disasters, Virgil, The Legendary Tom Stone. Now, the reason he's the last name mentioned is because he, although didn't win the Battle Royal itself, he won the moral victory of the Battle Royal. He was the last jobber stand-in. Congratulations to Tom Stone, whoever you are. Tatanka won the 40-man Battle Royal at 13 minutes and 16 seconds by last eliminating Blake Beverly and IRS, where the two heels against the one babyface, bit of confusion... One heel eliminates the other. Babyface, of course, finds it easy when it's one-on-one. So Tatanka is the main man of May 1992. And to be fair, he was still within his undefeated streak as this tape was released over a year later. Quite an impressive streak. You know, they talk about Goldbergs or, or Oscars or them kind of streaks. You've got to remember Tatanka had one as well and a, a good one. We now cut back to Mr. Perfect and he has been shown all of them. Stamps, that is. There is a $2 million stamp that he just peels off willy-nilly to inspect it. The woman gets a little bit annoyed, or I'd say mildly annoyed at the fact that he's just peeled this $2 million stamp off. That's annoying. Rendering it worthless. He doesn't want it anyway because it's been smudged. It's no good. Just just no more stamps, please. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. Just get to the punchline already. Here's a pile of stamps. Now, it says it's worth eight cents, but really, it's worth 12. We're not going to get to the punchline. We're going to Brett's art. Huh? What? Huh? What? I do pronounce my H's, as in Brett Hart. And the Canadian technician, the excellence of execution, definitely does have a H at the beginning of his name. But this is not focusing on his in-ring ability. It is focusing on his artistic side, his artwork. Hence, Brett Art. Brett explains that it kills time in the dressing room as he is reserved and relaxed kind of cat. And so he likes to draw cartoons. He loves wrestling. He's good at it. But it's his job, damn it. You can only enjoy your job so much when you have to do it for a living. His hobby is cartoon drawing and it's something he aspires to do. Who does he draw? Well, we see him sketching The Undertaker from Paul Bearer. On the tape, we're watching a time lapse. Can you tell what it is yet? Don't don't look that up. Don't don't look it up. It's, it's, it's not worth looking into. But that's what we are watching. Trying to guess what who is he drawing? Who's that supposed to be? It feels like we're watching Art Attack. Now that is a reference that you can look up. Unless you lived in the UK in the nineties where you already know what Art Attack is and, and if you do, good on you. My kind of people. He draws Yokozuna, Mr. Fuji, and explains that some wrestlers take offence to their depictions. 
which I'm surprised was never turned into a TV angle. I mean, come on, some of the crap they made into angles. Surely they could have done Bret Hart drawing somebody. I don't like you, brother. He draws Ted DiBiase and IRS before his big finale is the Hulkster himself, the man who is no longer in the Federation, but he manages to get his likeness on yet another VHS tape, even though he's not with the company. That's Hulk Hogan, brother. I wonder if you got royalties for this. Kind of ironic considering the uh, the troubles that there were between Brett and Hulk Hogan at this point that Brett Hart chooses to draw or is open to drawing Hulk Hogan, literally drawing attention to the man that refused to put him over. Anyway, let's get back to some wrestling. It's time for an intercontinental title match because we haven't seen enough of them yet. It's Brett Hart versus Rick Martel. Of course, this is prior to the Shawn Michaels title defences. This is from the 1st of June 1992 on Primetime Wrestling from the Cops Coliseum in Hamilton, Ontario. So you're in Canada, let's have two Canadians fight each other. I'm instantly distracted by Bret Hart's boots. They're pink and white, kind of like the sweet treats, you know, with the wafers and the marshmallow in the middle of the same name. If the sky is pink and white, if the ground is black and yellow. Uh, they're both sporting pink as well, which... Kind of odd. Everything in this match is pink. There's no sort of stark contrast between the heel and the babyface. Now, I'm not saying that the heel needs to wear black and the babyface needs to wear white, but have a little bit of distinction. In fact, they are both wearing the exact same boots. Hart does have a little star on his, but other than that, they are exactly the same. They must be from the same Canadian cobbler. Takedowns and head scissors. It's all quite even, with Martel showing arrogance. He does this with a catwheel and some star jumps after avoiding a Bret Hart attack. This is an art attack? This is an art attack? I said heart attack, not art attack. Although, definitely check out that reference. Hammerlocks and counters as these two technicians are trying to out-wrestle each other. Martel catwheels once again, but this time Brett's ready for it and lines up a clothesline, taking the model out of the ring. Martel takes advantage when he's been thrown back in, though. Brett sends him into the ring post, identifying the shoulder as a target. Wrist locks and hammer locks. Visually, the quality of the tape has, has everything looking like a dull shade of grey, barring the two massive splashes of pink on the attire and the tans of both wrestlers. It is really a stark contrast. It's quite distracting watching the match. Two bright figures on a really dull background. A vertical body press. Martel catches and hangs Hart on the top rope. The model is now in charge with a chin lock, with a knee digging into the spine of Brett for that extra pressure. I love it. Love them little touches. Macho thinks Martel would retire as champion rather than defend it the way that Bret Hart does. Brett's obviously a fighting champion, Martel's not. An excellent high-speed sunset flip from Bret Hart gets a two-count. Macho has wrestled both men, he states, but he can't tell a difference as he has the ultimate respect for their speed quickness, which I am pretty sure are the same thing. They both know where they are in the ring also, which is always a benefit. Got wrench suplex for a two-count for the model, and a rib breaker, but a slingshot splash from the outside to Brett fails as the hitman gets his knees up. A suplex attempt from Martel is avoided, and Hart fails to roll up Martel off the ropes. But he does nail an inverted atomic drop, a clothesline, rights, and a side Russian leg sweep for a two-count. An inside cradle for another two, backbreaker. It seems we are heading to a conclusion as Bret Hart is flying. It's time for the sharpshooter. But Martel pulls the referee down blatantly and grabs his atomizer. With the arrogance fragrance inside, he nails Bret Hart with it, and could have a pinfall victory, but instead 
He cinches in a Boston Crab, which, of course, is his finisher. But you've just knocked somebody out with an atomizer. Why not go for a pinfall? Bret Hart tries to fight out of the submission. And Shawn Michaels skips down to ringside. Dancing around the ring to the far side where Bret is pushing himself up off the mat to alleviate the pressure. And HBK nails Bret Hart multiple times for a disqualification. The referee calls for the bell and informs Martel that the match is over. The model celebrates until the referee slams his arm down and he gets a glimpse of Shawn Michaels laid into Bret Hart. The two heels then exchange words before Michaels exits. Of course, this is a couple of months before the 1992 SummerSlam match where Bret Hart would lose the Intercontinental belt to British Bulldog at Wembley Stadium in London. And at the same event, Shawn Michaels faced off with Rick Martel in a match where Both men agreed not to hit each other in the face. Gotta love that stipulation. Next up, we have that tag match. It's the Beverly Brothers versus the Natural Disasters. And we jump straight into the match. The Beverlies are with the genius who has a poem that I am not going to regurgitate. Sneak attack by the Bevs as the Disasters are high-tenning. But the big guys cotton eye Joe their way out of the situation with clotheslines, shoulder blocks, big splashes in the opposite corners. And then they whip both men into the same corner with Bo squashing Blake, Typhoon squashing both the Beverlies, and then Earthquake squashing all three men. There's a shot from the back cover, justifying a second image. Finally, it is down to one-on-one. Typhoon slams Blake. Blake launches himself over the top rope to the outside, seemingly safe away from Typhoon, but Earthquake stalks behind him. And Heenan screams, Behind you! Behind you, Mike! As Earthquake nails a clothesline, of course, Blake is Mike Enos. That's his real name. Bo kicks Typhoon in the back whilst the referee is distracted, and Blake gets back in the ring with some chokes. Teamwork from the Beverly Brothers, and Bo with a snapmare, and knees to Typhoon. We get the draping Leapfrog Midnight Express sit down to the back. You know what I mean when you see it. What is that move called? You see it so often. It's a good tag team move. Typhoon squashes Bo in the corner. Big boots, and Typh tags in Quake. Belly to belly to Blake, but Bo breaks up the pin. That was hard to say. A power slam and an elbow drop. But once again, it is broken up. Earthquake then nails Bo to the outside before his scoop slam sets up Blake for the Richter scale splash. But Blake rolls out. Typhoon is pestered by the genius, and so Typh manhandles him while Earthquake fights the two Beverlies until Blake is thrown back in the ring. And Bo distracts Earthquake whilst the referee reaches a 10 count. He awards the match to the Beverly Brothers by count out. Pretty much a nothing match, just an example of let's, let's have. T- Two teams face each other. Let's not really have a decisive winner. The heels are going to sneak it. Just pip them at the post. Happened a lot in the early 90s. Let's move on. Mr. Perfect has a massive magnifier. He jumps when he rotates it towards the female employee of the Stamp Museum. Yes, the same woman who he asked out earlier uh, now repulses him close up. He then sends us to The Undertaker versus Yokozuna, a marquee match anywhere. Multiple title matches between the two pay-per-view main events and here we have the earliest instalment of their rivalry. Well, the earliest uh, as far as I know. You know nothing, Johnson.
This is from the 8th of March 1993, before Yoko had won the heavyweight belt and lost it to Hulk Hogan the same night. It's from the Freeman Coliseum in San Antonio, Texas. A near sellout crowd it was. The anticipation, the excitement, you could cut it with a knife. Gorilla Monsoon and Lord Alfred Hayes are back behind the announce desk, and Alfred claims that Yoko could be a future WWF champion. Funnily enough, he was champion at the time of this tape's release, but don't give Alfred too much credit as Yoko was the current Royal Rumble winner and at this point he was heading to the main event of Wrestlemania for a title shot so of course there was a strong possibility that he would be a future champion they claim that Tito Santana would have won the Alamo by himself which is no relevance to anything other than the fact that we are in Texas and Tito is Mexican Uh, okay the atmosphere is electric it's alive claims Alfred it's alive it's alive it's alive it's alive And to be fair, the noise is incredible. Neither man is flinching. Once The Undertaker is in the ring, what is going to happen when these two collide? Yoko ducks under The Undertaker, who reverts this into a DDT. But then he misses an elbow drop, and Yoko sends Taker out the ring. Fuji hits him with a Japanese flag, that's Undertaker, and his head into the steps before throwing The Undertaker back inside. Yoko is quicker than Taker, despite his sheer mass. He goes for a bonsai splash in the corner. Scoop slam, a leg drop from Yoko, but The Undertaker sits up. A belly-to-belly from Yoko Zuna, but Taker sits up again. Yoko then gets the salt bucket, because of course, we're going to be in Japanese via Samoa. Of course, he throws salt before every match in like a, um, a sumo tradition, and that salt bucket he uses to nail The Undertaker in the head for a blatant DQ. Lord Alfred Hayes calls it frustration. Monsoon calls it inexperience. I call it Clever bait and switch booking. Let's not give a pay-per-view main event away for nothing, even on a Coliseum home videotape. Mr. Fuji is berating Yokozuna as he doesn't like the short end of the purse money. I love Monsoon's focus on the financial rewards for the winner as opposed to the loser. Yeah, they both get money, but if you win, you get more money. A bonsai drop attempt from Yoko, but The Undertaker sits up to avoid the contact, leaving Yoko flat on his ass. Kicks, clotheslines... And finally, a leaping lariat from The Undertaker knocks down Yoko. The big man is down. We get a very, very poor choke slam. And Mike McGurk, I'm a Mike McGurk guy, calls it a DQ victory for The Undertaker. Yoko is shouting as he's leaving. And Beera holds The Undertaker's focus with the urn. And that's the end of that encounter. This is the end. Disappointing? Uh, yeah. Interesting. Definitely. Mr. Perfect then closes off this tape by saying that it's obvious he won't get the perfect stamp. The woman has shown everything and he's baffled at the lack of interest from Perfect. He finally reveals what makes his own collection so perfect. We get a close-up. It is his very own Coliseum Video Collector's stamp. Cue the music and close the tape. Overall, this tape is a mixed bag. 
It is simply a compilation of relatively insignificant matches from May of 92 to March of 1993. Nothing we see made any real impact in the WWF. Perhaps Bret Hart defeating Rick Martel by DQ, setting up two SummerSlam matches, has some relevance, but then again, that's because it was on TV, it was furthering storylines. These Coliseum home video tapes were supposed to be exclusives, matches you didn't don't see. Is there really supposed to be any consequence? Maybe not. The whole federation was in transition. This home video tape was highlighting the new generation of Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, Yokozuna and Tatanka, Razor, Rick Martel. They all pick up wins on this tape and there's no spotlight of the old guard, the Ric Flair, Hulk Hogan, Jake Roberts, Ultimate Warrior. No mention of them. Well, mention of Hulk Hogan, brother. And despite the insignificant of the matches compiled, there still were some to enjoy. Hart and Martel was probably the pick of the bunch as far as technical work goes. Sean and Skinner was a pleasant surprise to watch. Even Sean and Kamala, for what it was, it was entertaining. Yoko and Taker was all sizzle and no steak. But why would they give you the steak at this point? They knew you're heading towards a rivalry between Yoko and The Undertaker. You've got two main eventers there. Let's not give it away for free. Why would you give it away for free? It is ridiculous. It was just an absolute teaser. It did its job, it was entertaining, and left me wanting more between the two of them. On the negative side, no one needs to see Virgil in any capacity whatsoever. Razor didn't look up to much with his victory over the boss man. High energy absolutely suck. The Battle Royal had a naff ratio of one quarter superstars to three quarters of jobbers. And the Beverly's versus the Natural Disasters was poor, if not a logical effort. Brett's art was neither here nor there. It was something different, and we always appreciate that, but really, it was just a bit of a waste of time. And of course, Mr. Perfect's quest for the perfect stamp was the ultimate waste of time. I mean, what the hell is this all about? Let's put this into 1993 perspective. Mr. Perfect was called upon at the end of 1992 to replace the Ultimate Warrior in a pay-per-view main event, Survivor Series 92. He then chased Ric Flair from the WWF, literally having a Loser Leaves WWF match. That was in early 1993. He lost to the up-and-coming Lex Luger at WrestleMania 9. He gave Bret Hart that classic match at the King of the Ring in 1993, a fantastic match. Then here we are a couple of weeks later on a tape that's released, and he's looking for a stamp. I mean, what is Mr. Perfect at this point? Is he a main eventer? Is he just there to put over the younger guys? He's a top babyface in the company. And here he is looking for bloody stamps. It's just a cop-out of a segue, isn't it? Let's be honest. It's, right, we need something to, uh, to, to link all these clips together. It's just filler, and I don't really know why I'm even bothering to criticise it, because it's, it doesn't mean anything. It's insignificant. It's just, I don't know, it, it just grinded on me a little bit. We didn't even get to see a Mr. Perfect match. Is this tape recommended? (laughs) Not really. Unless you grew up with the era or are curious about the backstories that were given some of the lesser known talents. That's something that I haven't explained in this podcast. The commentary during every match, they do try and give backstory to every wrestler. For example, Skinner and the Beverly Brothers. They talk about them a bit more in depth. Stuff that you're not going to read on Wikipedia. And these are guys that are not being talked about on wrestling podcasts much anywhere else. Even if it's kayfabe, you're getting to hear a little bit of of backstory about these guys. It brings me on to the point of the commentators. I love the freedom that these commentators have. It's more authentic. It allows some legendary lines, some interesting points of view, and just some entertaining tales and theories. Definitely is a case of less script equals more entertainment, in my opinion. 
just another aspect of professional wrestling which seems to have been lost over time. The last thing for us to look at is the ultimate gladiator of the Coliseum of Home Videos. After the first tape, we have an out-and-out leader with a massive seven points. Of course, that seven points came from three matches that he chose himself. Perhaps not a smart move considering he could have picked three matches where he won. It's Shawn Michaels who picked up two pinfall victories and one count-out draw, claiming, as they say, seven points for his Bashed in the USA efforts with Razor Ramon and IRS each picking up three points for their pinfall victories. IRS, of course, in the tag match. Razor Ramon beating the big boss man. Also, Tatanka has three points for his Battle Royal victory, although his three points were over two matches where he lost by pinfall to Money Inc. and Rick Martel. Ted DiBiase, Rick Martel, Bret Hart, Bo Beverly and Blake Beverly and The Undertaker all have two points for their victories, whilst Kamala is the only person on one point for his count-out draw with Shawn Michaels. Yokozuna, Bo Beverly, Earthquake, Virgil, Owen Hart and The Big Boss Man all start off the series with defeats. Zero points on the board. But that is all we have time for in this episode. Episode 1 of the Gems of Wrestling's Coliseum Collection. It was WF116 bashed in the USA. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash gems of wrestling. Like, share, and subscribe to the podcast Gems of Wrestling on Buzzsprout, iTunes, and Stitcher. And in the words of Macho Man Randy Savage, I think I've picked a winner in Skinner, but I would not invite him to dinner. <laughs> <laughs>